half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, that gives you a taste of what the last six chapters of Daniel are like. When we looked at the first six chapters, it was a little bit more simple. These last six chapters are what we might call tough sledding. They are hard chapters to interpret and to understand. And the difference within this book, in the first six chapters and the last six chapters, we are going from what we would know as historical narrative. These are accounts, these are stories, these are easily understandable. Not only are they easily understandable, but they're easily relatable. But then you have these last six chapters, which are far more difficult. And so really what's going on here, right in the middle of the book of Daniel, is we are switching genres, which is something that is not usually seen within a book of the Bible. If you go to 1 Samuel, you will just have historical narrative all the way through, just constant stories. But then you go to a book like maybe Revelation, and it is apocalyptic, and it is uh, focused on things that are dreams and visions, these revelations that John is having. It is far more difficult to understand. And so we are going from easily understandable stories, if you will, accounts that actually happened to visions, dreams, things that are going to happen. And so in some ways, I want to begin the second half of this book by acknowledging the fact that it is difficult to understand. But regardless of difficulty, adding in that this is God's word. And so we come to it. And this is what expository preaching forces us to do when we walk through books of the Bible together. Sure, it's nice to walk through the six chapters that are easy to understand. But then what do we do when we get to the higher chapters? We still go through them. And so here we are this morning in what we would understand to be apocalyptic literature. But let me also say this, that although the rest of the book gets a little bit difficult, and although we acknowledge that this truly is God's word, we should all work hard to understand it as well. And I want to also say that my own approach to these last six chapters are going to be to emphasize what I think is clear within them. Okay, So I am not going to spend 40 minutes on minutiae. We're going to emphasize the, the great uh, highlights of these passages, these grand themes, these grand doctrines, and emphasize what is very clear, opposed to what so often is done with passages like this, and that is to speculate on things that aren't so clear. So for those of you who have been keeping a good eye as we've been walking through this book of Daniel and where we are in the point of Daniel's life, remember last week we left off and Daniel is in his 90s, right? He's in his late 80s, he's in his 90s, and he gets dropped into the lion's den. But you see within the first verse of chapter 7, don't you, that we're going back in time a little bit, aren't we? Because we know that King Belshazzar was taken over and Daniel was elevated to third in the kingdom. But then we know that Darius took over from there at the end of chapter 6. And so here we are in chapter 7 and it says during the reign of who? King Belshazzar. So we're going back in time a little bit back to Belshazzar's reign who was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
So Daniel is apparently not working in a prominent position for King Belshazzar at this moment. You remember again from a couple chapters ago that Daniel was all but forgotten apparently by most of the people including Belshazzar until the the king's mother or grandmother ended up stepping forward and saying actually there is a guy who can interpret your dream for you and his name is is Belteshazzar or Daniel. And so Daniel has been given these God-given abilities to interpret dreams. Belshazzar brings him to the forefront and he is given the third place in the kingdom but at the time when he has the vision of these four beasts he is not one of the prime men in the land of Babylon God is still though in the process of revealing himself to Daniel so this kind of fills in a little bit of the gap what was Daniel doing uh, when he wasn't in a prominent position with Belshazzar well he was receiving apparently visions and dreams. He was uh, able to gather more information concerning what the Lord has. And so this chapter gives us a really grand vision to kind of begin and give you an overview of it. It displays for us God's sovereignty over all of the nations of the earth. It gives us a little bit of insight into the very throne room of God, who the Ancient of Days is, and what the Son of Man is going to do, and really what we're all going to be doing for all of eternity. And so, although, again, this might be a little bit more of a difficult chapter in Daniel to interpret, there may also not be a more practical chapter than Daniel chapter 7, and as applicable as this one is. And I want to simply uh, point out six main chapters within this great chapter for you, which uh, you can find on the back of your bulletin this morning. I listed those out for you. But as you look at what those are, let me illustrate what is happening. Daniel is in bed. And he begins to see these visions. He begins to have these dreams. And if I can illustrate it this way, it's almost like Daniel has a couple of of TV screens in front of him. And that's a little bit crude, but a couple TV screens in front of him that he's looking back and forth at. And so he looks over at, at one screen, and it's almost as though he's watching a horror movie. That there's these beasts that are coming out of this great sea... And that's what he's seeing, and that's what he writes down for us. But then on the other screen, he looks over to this other screen, and he begins to see this Ancient of Days. He begins to see this Son of Man and so forth. And so he's looking back and forth. On one side, he has these terrible beasts. On the other side, he has the Ancient of Days. On the other side, all of those beasts are destroyed. Then he comes back and sees that the Son of Man is being presented, and he's going back and forth and explaining what he is seeing in these visions and in these dreams and he's so intrigued and he's troubled within these visions that as you see in the interpretation he goes up and he taps an angel or a bystander of some kind on the shoulder and says what does all this mean the guy who has been interpreting visions this whole book so far suddenly is at a loss He doesn't know. He doesn't know what the interpretation is. Now, before we get to these four beasts, I want you to notice. Look at verse 2 with me. He says this. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And so there's something here before we get to the beast. That Daniel sees the winds of heaven... Stirring up the great sea. The, the sea is oftentimes within the Bible. Uh, you can imagine back in those days uh, how, how leery one would be of the sea. Of course, they had ships and so forth. But I know for me, I'm leery anyways of the sea in 2018, let alone back these thousands of years ago, to look at the ocean and, and wonder what's inside. To, to never, I've seen a picture of a blue whale. Or to never see those creepy 
things that are way, way, way deep that kind of have these lights and everything. Like to not know what's in the ocean. And so the great sea is so often a, a sign of judgment, right? That it's a sign of, of trouble within the Bible. We get the idea of water as judgment all the way back in Genesis, don't we? With Noah. Noah builds an ark and these waters of judgment rush the earth and kill everybody that is on the earth. So it's judgment. And you notice here that the water, the great sea, is being stirred up. And this is a, this is a picture. The great sea is, is emblematic of what the world is. And so this great sea is being stirred up. This is a problem. This is trouble. This is not going to be good for the nations of the earth, just like the flood itself was not good for the earth, to be stirred up in this way. But do you notice who or what is stirring up the great sea? The winds of heaven. Obviously, over the last couple of weeks, we have experienced these nor'easters, right? Everybody, you've seen the snow falling the last couple of weeks? <laughs> and we can trace it back because we know something of meteorology, although I'm not sure meteorologists know much about meteorology. We know that the reason when we see on the news the, the, the pictures of, of you know, southern Maine, the coast there, and you see all these massive waves, right? And, and they're just crashing, there's flooding, and we can say, oh, well, the reason that's happening is because of the nor'easter, right? And within this text this morning, why is this great sea being stirred up? Kind of like the pictures we see on the news, the video we see on the news. The the reason that it's being stirred up is not because of a nor'easter, but because of the winds of heaven. And so what is creating the ice caps and the trouble and the problems going on within this great sea that is the nations and the earth, what is creating these waves crashing? It's the very winds of heaven. These are coming... From God. These winds from Him, this sovereignty of God yet again on display. Not only is God allowing the the great winds to do this, He is in fact orchestrating all of this to happen, which is very disturbing and troubling for the nations. But He wants these things to happen, and it's His very wind that is making it happen. But while all of this great sea on earth is being swirled up by the winds of heaven, what is going on in heaven, in the sea of heaven? Well, we know from Revelation 4 that the sea in heaven is likened unto crystal. It is a glassy sea. And so, the picture here and the lesson for us is to consider and something to remind ourselves of that although the sea of the earth may be incredibly tumultuous and unbearable, the sea in heaven remains undisturbed. As Ligon Duncan has said, Daniel 7 teaches us that the events of history are not isolated from events beyond history. Daniel 7 teaches us that the course of humanity is determined in the throne room of God Almighty. So it's from this very sea, this scary setting, from which these four beasts end up rising out of. One person has said that these beasts that we see, that they're not... They're not rated PG-13. This is not like putting in Jurassic Park and seeing a Tyrannosaurus Rex Rex, or Velociraptor and saying, oh, that would be frightening to run into in the woods. That would certainly be frightening, but not to a a, a scary level. Like, like, yes, it's frightening, but it's not creepy as well, right? A Tyrannosaurus Rex isn't creepy, it's just scary. But when you pull over to Daniel chapter 7, what you begin to see is scary plus creepy. Like... A clown walking down the middle of your road for no apparent reason. (laughs) Or like a vampire, right? Or a werewolf, that sort of thing. Look at verse 3 again. 
And four great and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, was like a bear. It was raised up on one side, again, whatever that means, being raised up. Well, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, and with the four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads and dominion was giving it. So, so these are our animals, which we, again, if we walked into the woods and we saw a bear, yes, we, we would be frightened, but it would not be frightening plus creepy and eerie. But these are. You have this lion that has wings of like an eagle, yet they've been ripped off. These wings have been plucked off. And the lion begins to stand up and the mind of a man is given to it. And then you have a bear, again, although that seems normal and something you'd find in the main woods, it's, it's raised up on one side somehow, and it's got three ribs hanging out of its mouth. And then there's this four-headed leopard with the wings of a bird. And if all of these weren't scary enough, out of the sea comes this fourth creature or beast that outshines them all, although we're not told the specific animal it looks like, we're just told that it's worse than all of the other ones. Look at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. And so this fourth beast comes out of the sea. It's got these ten horns apparently on it, plus this little horn that dismantles three horns and has iron teeth. And now you're probably asking yourself at this moment, what in the world could this all possibly mean? What do all of the horns and the bear that's raised up on one side and the lion with the mind of a man and the four-headed leopard, what does all of this mean? I have no idea. I have no idea. And you say, what kind of preacher are you? So, but there's a couple things happening here that we need to understand. That theologians and Bible interpreters are largely unified in determining what these four beasts are. Okay? So when you look at these four beasts, when you look at the lion with the wings that are ripped off, often likened to Babylon, the bear as the Medes and the Persians, the leopard as Greece, and the beast with iron teeth as Rome, these same four empires that we saw back in Daniel chapter 2. You remember the, the vision or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has with the golden head and then the silver uh, chest and shoulders and so forth throughout the body. Really, the same, whatever kingdoms or kings are going on in Daniel 2 are the same ones very likely that are going on here within Daniel 7. But there is not total unity on if that is what these beasts even represent. And so for me... To go beyond that and to begin speculating not only about the beast, but then about all of these horns, and then the little horn that comes out and draws back the three horns, it's all very confusing. But I like what Sinclair Ferguson says when he says the following. Whatever our own identification may be, in other words, whatever we identify all of these things to be, we surely miss a basic thrust of this part of God's word if we regard our task as finished when we have solved the identification problem. 
And so what he's saying is that if we went through this and we were able to say, okay, the four beasts mean this, the ten horns, these are all these other little empires, and then the little horn is this, and we kind of nail down exactly how all of that shakes out or how we think it's supposed to shake out, that does not mean that you understand the point of this passage. And so the point of the passage is not to identify every little one of these things. I think part of why it's so cloudy and mysterious is for that reason. So often people get so focused in, in on like one pine cone on one tree in the whole forest and they miss the whole forest because of it. So instead, what we should see clearly is how these beasts, whoever they are, whether they are the four uh, nations that I had mentioned, what we should see is that they represent the putrid nature of the nations of the world. Okay, so we, we want to emphasize what is obvious. And what is obvious is that these four beasts do not represent godliness. They represent wickedness. So these beasts or kingdoms, they typify our, our wickedness, our own wickedness, and where we stand as the wicked today, and that we all stand in judgment for the wretches that we are, that we're all deserving of judgment. So this is the, really the first scene that Daniel is looking upon. This, this ocean, this great sea with these animals rising up out of it. But it brings us to the second scene, if you will. The scene of the Ancient of Days found in, in verse 9. And so Daniel looks and he sees that horrific episode. He goes back and he begins to see on this other screen, if you will, in this other vision, the throne room of God, where literally is struck within him, and I do not say this casually, the fear of God is struck into Daniel. Look at verse 9. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. We just sang this this morning. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. This is where we get the name, the ancient of days. The indication here is that God has no beginning. That our God, the God that we worship, is eternal. The scriptures say this in Psalms several times. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Behold, God is great and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable, Job says. It's unsearchable. The way to describe God is, is not numerically. It is simply by saying He is the Ancient of Days. You can't put a number on it. He is the eternal God. And in light of this, you think of how demeaning and defacing of God it is to refer to Him in, in with, with phrases or words like the man upstairs. As though God is really some sort of cosmic Santa Claus that wants nothing more than to give you a present. He is the ancient of days. That the appearance of God would strike 
fear into the soul of any who would look upon him. If somehow there were a way for any of us here today to get a glimpse of God, it would strike us down. Daniel is fortunate that this is but a vision. Otherwise, the vision of God would render him lifeless. And I think really, and I agree with uh, Lloyd-Jones when he says that the great tragedy of evangelicalism today, again, this is uh, from my own perspective, is that we have lost sight of who God is and who we are in relation to God. I can appreciate, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, I can appreciate the personal nature of God. That God is personal and God loves you. That He is our Abba Father. That He he tenderly cares for us as a nursing mother would care for her child. But it, it is an utter tragedy that we have lost sight of the transcendent nature and the holiness and the glory and the splendor of God. If you aren't bowled over, when you read Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, if you're not bowled over by the way that Daniel describes God, then I don't know what to tell you. And you can hear the casual way that we talk about God and we use His name and in the conversations that we might have with other professing Christians. And maybe you think of God in this kind of a way. It's a little less than what the Bible says. And you think about how God, about God and how flexible He is, that He is more like a loving grandfather or loving Santa that only smiles when we mess up, that we aren't really concerned when we sin. We know He's watching, but somehow it's just all going to shake out in the end. And so again, I want to acknowledge the personal nature of God but there is a rope that I think we need to be walking where we say yes he is personal yes he loves us yes he is so good and for us but then on the other side we have to acknowledge who he is as God like Lewis describes Aslan that he is good but he is not tame so often we go to church we have our consciences massaged We don't talk about the sin that is killing us. And we don't talk about God as reflective in a way that He hates our sin. When all the while the Ancient of Days as described in this passage is a being that you would never want to trifle with. He has clothing that is white as snow. Daniel is seeing this vision and he's, he's saying, okay, his clothes, they look like this. His hair, it looks like this. His throne is just giving imagery to this great picture that he is seeing. He says his clothes, they're white as snow. You and I know what that looks like. Just look outside. You look at his hair, it's like wool. Look at your t-shirt, it's white. You look at his throne, it's as though these, these flames are coming up from his throne. So this throne that the Ancient of Days is sitting on seems more likely to be a throne that Satan would sit on. With these flames rising up, yet it is God who sits here. And according to the author of Hebrews, how does he refer to God? Our God is a consuming fire. One author said that the fire not only represents the blindingly brilliant manifestation of God's splendor, but also the fierce heat of his judgment on sin and on all those opposed to his supreme authority. And so you're supposed to, through these first ten verses, you're supposed to feel a contrast between the wicked nature of the world and the perfect and righteous nature of God. 
You're supposed to feel the contrast between the wicked kingdoms, those beasts, in light of the majesty and holiness and transcendence of God to the point where we feel the utter power of God to quench evildoers in verse 11 and 12, so much so that it's incredibly anticlimactic. And so we've seen these four beasts, the power, right? The greatness where Daniel is referring to how great and and, and majestic in an evil way, of course, that these beasts are. But then we've been exposed to the Ancient of Days and the glory and power that he has. And look what God does to the beasts in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's almost, there's this incredible buildup through the first seven or eight verses of these great beasts and what they look like and how the great and powerful they are, right? And then all of a sudden, it's just like, and then God wiped them out. It's anticlimactic. It's like in 2004, when the Red Sox came back on the Yankees, in the American League Championship Series, they're down three to nothing. The dramatic Red Sox, Kurt Schilling, his sock is bloody, and all of these incredible things that are happening to build the, the climax, right? And then you get to the World Series and we wiped them out in like four games. It was just like all this climax, and then, oh, this, the World Series itself was incredibly anticlimactic. It was more fun to beat the Yankees than it was to the Cardinals that year. And within this, you have all of this buildup. All of the, these are the beasts. These are, these are these great and powerful nations and kings. Oh, verse 11 and 12, and then God wiped them out. Totally destroys them. The great fourth beast that was prescribed, that was said to be so amazing, was wiped out. The, the one that was more terrible than all of the other ones. And then we see more of God's sovereignty here in that God just gives dominion to the other three. He lets them live a little while longer. So this is remarkable. Again, displaying God's sovereignty, realizing that the kingdoms of the earth, they have a bit in their mouth. They have a bit in their mouth, and God is the one directing them. And let that be a wonderful encouragement to you. That the wicked people of this earth are ultimately held in the hands of God. The kings of the earth are ultimately in God's hand. And He is going to move them as He pleases. There is not a king, as we have even seen with Nebuchadnezzar, who is outside of the sovereignty of God. There is not a kingdom on earth that is frightening to God. Russia, China, North Korea, the U.S. There's no amount of nuclear weapons that can make God get worried. He is the one who has all of these countries, all of these nations in control. God has the power to lift them up and he has the power to cast them down. And that's exactly what he has been doing for the entire amount of human history. But again, Daniel looks and he looks toward again that other screen. He's been looking back and forth and he sees this interaction between the Ancient of Days, again who we understand to be God, with an individual who is referred to as the Son of Man. And so the question is, who is the Son of Man? Look in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you see this exaltation of the son of man, whoever the son of man is, he is presented before the ancient of days. And what is shocking to me and what should be shocking to you is when this son of man is presented to God, the Ancient of Days, that we acknowledge that if we stood before now, or if He showed His glory, we would be struck dead. Struck dead. 
The Son of Man apparently doesn't flinch. The Son of Man is brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days. You and I would be undone. But the Son of Man, whoever He is, is not. And although it might seem clear, there is debate on who the Son of Man is within this passage. But I can't get beyond the fact that it is utterly obvious that this would be Christ. You read in the Gospels, and what is Jesus constantly referring to Himself as? The Son of Man, over and over, which would certainly have been an allusion back to Daniel in the minds of the Jews. You also see, if you remember the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where he is stoned. And he is able to, right before he dies, he looks up into heaven and he says specifically that he sees the Father, but that he also sees who he terms as the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. And so this scene in God's throne room in Daniel 7, I take to be the ascension of Christ following his work on the cross and in his resurrection. He comes with the clouds and you notice he doesn't come in the clouds to earth in these verses, he comes in the clouds to the presence of God. So his ascension into heaven following as a resurrection and he's presented before the Ancient of Days and something is given. He receives dominion and glory and kingdom of peoples, nations, and languages that are then serving him. You put that into the context on earth for us and what does that mean? I think it means that Jesus has effectively bound Satan from being able to blind the nations as a whole that he had for so long. He has conquered Satan. He's dealt the mortal blow. He fulfills uh, Genesis 3.15 in that he deals that crushing blow and crushes the head of the snake. And all that is left now is the final punch, which will eventually happen when he returns. But he has, through his life and work, he has dealt Satan a serious blow, thus giving Christ alone the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom that you and I belong to. The kingdom that you and I belong to. The kingdom of heaven. Again, I hope you are seeing how radically practical that this would be to your life to think that you, sitting in Windsor, Maine, living in central Maine, wherever it is that you live in this area, you are included in the most glorious kingdom on, in the universe, led by the most glorious king, the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a wonderful truth. This is a great thing for us to reflect and, and to think about. That although even where we live, it's not a great city. It's not the most powerful location on the planet. But we are part of the greatest kingdom. Jesus' kingdom. And then you have in the second half of this passage, what we see Daniel is anxious. And his visions have alarmed him. And so he goes up to somebody in that vision. And he says, what is the interpretation? This is apparently that real for Daniel in this vision. Like he can touch somebody and say, hey, what does all of this mean? And have a conversation with somebody within his vision. So again, Daniel, as, the inter- as an interpreter of visions, needs help himself. And so this one in the vision tells Daniel that the four beasts are in fact four kings that are going to rise up. Again, of what I think are Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome, Rome's empire, of course, extending into when Christ would come on the earth and a little bit beyond, of course. But this one that would trample down and break into pieces. And my understanding is that this fourth kingdom, Rome, likely will issue what is figuratively spoken of here as ten horns that will continue to advance the wickedness of the fourth great kingdom. 
So then there's this little horn that Daniel refers to, and we'll see the little horn again in next week's passage in Daniel 8. But there is this kingdom that will even persecute the saints. So this fourth kingdom is going to issue persecution. Believers of the Most High God are going to be persecuted, yet there is also a great encouragement here because the fourth kingdom, albeit wicked, stands in judgment of the Ancient of Days. And so for Daniel to see this stuff happening, that yes, they are wicked, but they are not tethered to, to, to nothing. They are in judgment to God. And so although it would be discouraging for Daniel to hear about the persecution that's going to befall the saints, people who are just like him, and he would have seen that vision, and his people being uh, 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 persecuted, it would have given him great sorrow. But to think that the people who are persecuting his people, the saints, they would be judged. And so we all belong in the forever kingdom as his saints. And so we, were all, we are all deeply impacted by this text. In fact, in point six here, we have the reign of the saints. See that in verses 18, 22, and 27. That we rule and reign with Christ. So splattered throughout this chapter are certain things that pertain to the saints, to believers. Look at verse 18, where it mentions that we are the saints of the Most High. So to whom do we belong? We belong to God. Also in verse 18, just by referring to the kingdom people as saints, what does that mean for us? It means that we're holy. It means that we've been set apart. So like Daniel had been holy in the land of Babylon for so long, you and I are to be holy in this place right now. And as those who are to be holy here, we recognize again, like Daniel and and, and Christ and so many followers of Jesus, that we are going to be persecuted. Verse 21 makes that clear. That the horn would prevail over the saints. Or in verse 25, he says that the horn will wear out the saints. This may very well be a reality for us, brothers and sisters. That persecution may come upon us, but we are not left without comfort from this passage. So Daniel, although struck with the weight that the saints would be persecuted and the horrifying nature of these beasts that he's seeing in this vision that he has, all of this would be so pungent for him to take in. Yet let me close with three pieces of encouragement for all of us drawn from Daniel 7. So persecution is happening right now to brothers and sisters that we have across the world. It is a reality for them. It may one day be a reality for you and for me. And so... When that comes and we're being worn out and persecuted, what could be some encouragement for us? I think first is that we have received a forever kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is forever. In verses 18, 22, and 27, again, it is very clear that the kingdom we belong to, although we are persecuted, is not ultimately the United States of America. It is God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is a present reality for the church of Christ. The kingdom is here and now, and we serve the king of the kingdom. Yet we do await the day when when the king returns, right? And we look forward to the day that he's going to return, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and no longer be exiles like Daniel is. The second encouragement is this. We have received a favorable judgment this is briefly mentioned in verse 22 the judgment for the saints 
There's an optimistic perspective here concerning our judgment. Although it is always a frightening thing to be judged, the judgment past is for the benefit of the saints of the Most High. And although this passage doesn't give us the reason our judgment is hopeful, the reason we are able to receive a favorable judgment is because by the sacrifice of the Son of Man, we as the guilty are redeemed and set free. And so, although this passage might not flesh that out for us, we do know that the Son of Man, as He has come to the Ancient of Days in the clouds uh, within this passage, in the throne room of God, we know that He just got off doing the most incredible thing that history has ever seen. And that God had come to earth and He had laid down His life as a sacrifice for many. And He was raised up on the third day. And then He lived and He spoke with disciples. And then He ascended up into heaven. And all of this that had been done was done for you and for me. That we would trust and believe in the message of the Gospel. To see the truth here. That although we stand in judgment as wicked sinners, there is a possibility that we get off. That we don't have to suffer the consequences. That we don't have to bear the wrath of the Ancient of Days. And that Jesus Christ Himself has come as the Son of Man. He has died for us. And He has given the opportunity to be redeemed. And to be set free. And to receive a favorable judgment. And the third encouragement. That we will stand with the saints, new and old, in the presence of God. You think of Daniel. Again, at this point, even in Belshazzar's reign, Daniel is an old man. He had his three friends to begin with in his journey in Babylon. But how encouraging it would be for Daniel to be looking at this vision and as probably feeling alone in Babylon for so long, to look in this vision and see a thousand thousands worshiping the same God that he worships. Sometimes it's just encouraging to know That there are other Christians in the world. That there are other Christians on your street or in your town. In our world where people are hostile to the Lord. How encouraging it is to come together each Lord's Day. And to worship Him with other people who say, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe what He has done for me. And how encouraging for Daniel to look into that vision and say, look at them all. And as we have looked in this passage... I think that the position that this text should put us in is a position of worship. That you and I didn't get to experience this vision that Daniel had, but in a sense we do get to experience it along with him with this vivid imagery that he has given. We have seen the Ancient of Days in this text. We have seen the Son of Man who is at his side even now. You have seen the throngs around his throne. And what are they doing? They are worshiping. And this is what you and I have to look forward to if you are a believer. Christian, rejoice in this truth. Let's pray.